today on Building the Open Metaverse. You know, a totally fully simulated world, say the whole of America, yeah, um, or the whole planet, you know, there, there, there are still challenges is that in that that demo runs on a single computer, yeah? Gameplay, the, you know, even though the AI, you know, we're doing something that most games don't do in that demo, in that all of the AI characters or vehicles are asynchronously simulating continuously. So what, that's why you see on YouTube all these traffic jams that happen in the demo, because a traffic jam will propagate and just get worse and worse and worse until some lucky event happens with an AI car and it just clears itself. But um, if you wanted to do that with millions, vehicles and millions of people, then we sort of need to start thinking about, well, how do you program AI and simulation across multiple computers? Because you can't possibly hold it in one computer. Welcome to Building the Open Metaverse, where technology experts discuss how the community is building the open metaverse together. Hosted by Patrick Cozy from Cesium and Mark Petit from Epic Games. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our show, Building the Open Metaverse, the podcast where technologies share their insight on how the community is building the metaverse together. Patrick, hello. How are you? Hi, Mark. Doing great. Just not my usual voice today. Ah, that's that's so unfortunate. Patrick Cozzi, our co-host, and today we have a very special guest and, uh, full disclosure, a colleague of mine and a longtime friend of mine. We're super happy to welcome Kim Library. The, the CTO of Epic Games to the podcast. Welcome, Kim. Hey, Mark. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? Good, good. Uh, so I'll do a quick intro and then I'll ask you to kind of describe a little bit your journey to the metaverse. But, you know, you've been CTO at Epic Games for uh, more than seven years now. Prior to that, you were, uh, you know, driving technology in Lucasfilm. And then you also were a number of things, but including, you know, all the technology and the VFX supervision on the three original Matrix movies. So... Uh, a pretty uh, a pretty impressive and, and busy career. Thanks for being there with us to share your uh, your vision on the metaverse. So, Kim, you know, let's start by having your your own version of your journey uh, through CG and into the metaverse. Okay, all right. Um, so, um, I went to university in Manchester, Manchester University, graduated in '89, and uh, was super into computer graphics. That's what I sort of specialized in the last year of university. And at the time, in 89, when you look at video games, you know, I used to play lots of video games. In fact, I had an Atari 800. Actually, it would have been an Atari ST by that period um, that I learned to program on and taught myself as a kid, like many, many of us old-timers did. Um, you know, I, I had to make a choice about my career. I knew I wanted to do computer graphics, and the challenge at the time would be video games, which I loved, were just nothing. There was nothing really happening in, in real-time CG at the time. So I'm like, well, maybe I'll, I'll go and work on movies. And, uh, you know, I, I finished university, did the usual take a year out of school, go to Australia, and then find a job. And when it came to finding a job, the first you know, movie job that I was able to get was a, a small company where I first met Mark many years ago um, uh, called the Computer Film Company. Um, were they were making films using computers, which was a novel thing at the time. I think very few places, there was a couple of places in California, maybe on the East Coast, and obviously the famous ILM was uh, doing amazing computer graphics at that period. So I, I started that um, and uh, just got lucky over time, you know, worked on more and more movies, initially as a software engineer, and gradually ended up getting into the creative side of things as a visual effects supervisor, mostly for the reason that, 
you know, in the early days, if you want to pioneer, it was pretty obvious that the visual effects supervisors on movies were the ones that called the shot, the shots in terms of what technology you could use. So um, eventually I got a job offer to come to California to work on a movie called What Dreams May Come. And then straight after that, we all, myself, John Gator, a bunch of my close friends that I'm still very much in touch with today, worked on a movie called The Matrix. And, um, you know, everybody knows what the movie's about. And uh, in fact, there's a connection to Mark there because uh, Soft Marge, where Mark was working at the time, uh, was Soft Marge and Mental Ray were at the core of the, the original Matrix movie. And we used it extensively for the bullet time shots um, in Matrix 1. But uh, what happened with them movies, you know, we sort of made all three of them, not totally back to back. There was a break of about a year between Matrix 1 and then Matrix Reloaded. Um, the core philosophy was hey, let's build visual effects in the way that programmers of the future would build a virtual universe. And, you know, the Matrix itself is kind of a metaverse in terms of it being a simulated world, using computer graphics to make you believe that you're actually looking at something that's real instead of it being fake. And, uh, you know, part of that, that project was, you know, digital humans, computer-generated fire, computer-generated clouds, digital cities, loads and loads and loads of sort of breakthrough, um, you know, ray tracing. I think we were one of the first shows to use a ton of ray tracing in a movie. Um, and uh, it just was, it just stuck with me. It, like, it, like, how do you use a computer to build a photoreal rendition of the world? And that sort of stuck with me. All through my career, you know, I did movies for another decade or so. And then eventually, thanks to my friend Paul Megan, I managed to get a, um, a transfer from ILM where I had been working into LucasArts. And LucasArts was the video game division of, of uh, George Lucas's Lucasfilm. And uh, we just had to go at trying to do all the stuff we'd done on movies in video games. And that's what brought me to Unreal Engine and, uh, and understanding the capabilities of, I think we were Unreal Engine 3 is what we were using at the time. And uh, eventually you start to see that there's going to be a revolution in the entertainment industry where the stuff that you used to make video games is going to be used for movies, for designing cars, for all sorts of industrial ca um, capabilities beyond just making cool video games that we love to play. And I'm like, you know, I, I really want to be part of that. And I think that being a part of Epic, especially as they were, you know, about to think about going free with the engine, would be a really cool journey. So that's that's sort of what brought us into our metaverse. I, you know, on the interview at Epic, I, um, you know, my wife um, Sandra, we came out to North Carolina to to check the place out before I took the job offer and played a game that they were working on called Fortnite. And Sandra was like, wow, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be the best thing ever. And I'm like, you know what? It is pretty cool. Who would know that years later, it's starting to evolve into this massive, you know, socially connected gaming space where all sorts of experiences are possible. So that's sort of my story of how I got to, into this world of the metaverse. You know, this year we did this Matrix Awakens demo, um, as you're all familiar with. And that was sort of a... How do, how do we go full circle? How do we take the things that we made in the first, second, and third movie and show that the world that that can happen on a video game platform and actually look better than it did 20 years ago when we made it in movies? So that was the whole, uh, the whole, the whole sort of um, full circle. Before we dig deeper on the Matrix uh, and the Matrix Awakened, can you talk to us about Star Wars 1313, I think? You know, that was a that was a big moment as well. You know, at least for me, it was a big a big eye opening moment that you 
you are responsible for. So what, what happened on that is that, you know, Paul Megan was running um, LucasArts at the time. And, you know, LucasArts had gone through a few iterations. You know, companies always constantly re- reinventing themselves. And they really wanted to make a splash to re-announce. They were back in AAA game development. Uh, they were going to work on two games. Um, uh, one of them was going to be a Star Wars action-adventure game. And uh, Paul said, hey, do you want to spend... You know, come in, come for like a sabbatical at LucasArts and see what you can do. And you know, I was I was introduced to a fantastic team. Um, uh, my friend Roger Cords um, and Les Latter were, and and the rest of the the team that were basically making that game were originally planning to do you know Gen Three. I guess it was Gen Three PlayStation Three game. Um, and uh, you know, we knew that the new PlayStation Four was going to come out, and we're like, shall we try and see? If we can take all the lessons that we've learned of making computer graphics, both when I was on the Matrix and also what we, ILM had done over the years, and bring together a hybrid team. So that team, we did we did this um, prototype demo that went to E3 and won all them awards that you're talking about for 1313, and it really did deploy. You know the way you know Hayden, who invented the ambi- Hayden and Hilmar, who invented the ambient occlusion techniques at ILM, they were part of that project. So we really ported a lot of the ILM shader technology and the philosophies of how do you make things look real, you know, turntable renders, calibrated lighting environments, all the things that you normally would use to make a movie look great, we tried to apply to making a video game. And the result was that demo. Yeah, and Patrick, that was for me a big moment because after spending all my career in the offline world, you know, that's looking at the demo that came down in Star Wars 1313. When I got the phone call from Epic from Kim, this is why I said, yeah, I believe, you know, we can get all of that stuff working in real time. And if someone can do it, that's him. And so that's why I, I also I joined Epic, if you just, just as an aside. So. We, we, we had an awesome team. In fact, that, that, that team, a lot of them are part of uh, ILMX Lab. So when you see the cool VR experience, and I think they worked on the Millennium Falcon thing that's at the park. So they're a pretty, pretty killer team. First, Kim, it's such an honor to have you here. I, I really love your passion and I love all the work that you're doing to take what was once movie rendering and make it real time and I'm very much a believer that game engines aren't just for games it's for all things 3D uh, and love that you're pushing the limits on on real time 3D Uh, so the Matrix Awakening I have to say that's the the best piece of real time 3D experience or demo that that I've ever seen just the scale the rendering quality uh, the interactivity Uh, we'd love to hear you know a bit about the backstory in making it, and also, you know, some of the, just the biggest technical challenges. Okay. Um, All right. So the backstory, you know, we talked a little bit about how, you know, trying to do what we'd done in the original Matrix movies in real time has been sort of a driving, a driving um, uh, feature in my career and the team's career. And um, in fact, many people that worked on Matrix Awakens actually worked on the Matrix movies. Jerome, who's our sort of art, uh, art director that, basically put the piece together he he worked on the um the architect scene in matrix uh, reloaded and revolutions anyway so how did it start so um obviously i'm good friends with lana wachowski and john gator and uh and we ended up going to dinner one night and she tells us that she's going to make another matrix movie and you know was part of it was trying to get the band back together um in the classic lana fashion and i'm like look i can't make the movie for you. We can help because the engine can do all this cool stuff now for visual effects. And, you know, thankfully, Lana believed in that and we were able to have um, Dan Glass and uh, Double Negative run with, you know, making part of the movie with with Unreal Engine. But um, I'm like, how how about this? We'll we'll help on the movie a little bit, 
but how about you let us make a demo? Every year we do these cool tech demos to show off Unreal Engine. We have the latest version, Unreal Engine 5. And, you know, Tim's been asking us to, can, can we try and show the way forward for Unreal Engine users how to make a big open world, sort of a city level simulation? And the Matrix, you know, what, what cooler way to talk about the emerging metaverse, the photorealism of virtual environments, a living, breathing city than the Matrix? And Lana was sure that sounds fantastic. Um, obviously, we had to work with our friends at Warner Brothers and Warner's. You know, they, they're one of our, our um, biggest customers in the gaming segments. Almost all their studios run on Unreal Engine. And they were super excited to help out and uh, bless the project. So, you know, we started and, you know, the, 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 the technical challenge is, you know, it's a, new, it's a new version of the engine. So a new version of the engine isn't like the version of the engine that our customers use. A new version of the engine is one that quite often on a daily basis is probably not working in exactly the way you would want it to. So the, 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 the real challenge is, you know, working with a, our awesome engine team to make sure enough functionality was coming online that we could actually build this massive large-scale large environment. And you, I've got to hand it to the, the, the engine team and the gameplay team and the art team that, that it, you know, it's quite, there's quite a lot of complex sequencing there. So, you know, being able to deal with, you know, how are we going to build this procedural city? How do we integrate our Houdini workflows into the engine? While the engine is still, you know, it's still a baby. It's not, it's not grown yet at that time was, was quite a challenge. Um, but in terms of um, uh, the really hard stuff, I think, you know, trying to work out how do you build a city with a relatively small team? Um, how do we, you know, use proceduralism, how many building blocks. It was a really big journey of discovery. And although the team that we have, the special projects team that built the demo, um, although it's not just special projects, people from all over Epic were involved in the project, um, had made, again, before we made Robo Recall, nothing, you know, we'd never built a large-scale world of this size. So, and we, it's not a huge team. So uh, at the core of it, we really wanted to show, hey, how do, how do we get these two tools to work together, Houdini, and Unreal Engine. How do we put the right amount of proceduralism in the engine? How do we deal with, you know, using Nanite and Lumen to its best capabilities? So there was a, there was a lot of challenges there. The other um, elephant in the room is that we have two very famous actors in the demo, and making sure that we do not, you know, disrespect their performances or you know put the the demo in a weird, uncanny valley um, uh, was quite challenging. And thankfully, we've got. An amazing team um, uh, at Three Lateral and Cubic Motion that were able to work with our local character team here in the Larkspur office. Um, and then the other bit of it was we really wanted to ship. So making it run on an on a Xbox Series X, Series S, PlayStation Five is uh, was uh, was you know quite the challenge. But it does you know it's super authentic to our audience. It's like look, it's actually running on console. It's not running on a supercomputer. So we felt it was important. So. I think that summarizes the majority of it. You know, the physics system was pretty heavily used. There was a lot of upgrades there. Just, it, you know, you name it, there's a feature in Unreal Engine 5 that's used on this demo. And how many developers and how many artists over what time period? You know, the, the, artist, the artist count is, it's, it's actually difficult we have to come up with a number because it's, we did a bunch of outsourcing. We worked with um, our friends at uh, Weta VFX uh, to do some of the building modeling and a little bit of the character simulation stuff. We had our friends at Halon work on it. So I think total, the amount of artists that touched this demo would have been around the 50, 60 artists in total, but not continuous. Um, the special projects art team is actually pretty small. 
Um, and then developers, well, it, it's the brand new engine. So you could argue that the entire engine team was involved because they're, they're hardening UE5. And, you know, we don't just ship an engine that, we, okay, there's the code, it's complete, out it goes. They're able to look at the, the, the artists and gameplay uh, people and gameplay engineers you, making this demo and going, is it working? Does it work right? Is it too easy? Do we need to move the buttons around? So it really, a large proportion of the engine team. So it's, it, it probably ends up being the amount of engineers that would have touched this demo would have probably been more than 100 people. But not, they're not excluded. They're working on the engine. But, you know, hey, this this building doesn't load quick enough. What's going on? Oh, well, let me optimize my code for streaming geometry or whatever they would be doing. Got it, got it. And then you mentioned, uh, you know, the upcoming MicroPolygon render and Unreal Engine 5 Nanite, as well as the dynamic uh, global illumination engine uh, Luma. I mean, I, I'm curious, was, was there any uh, lessons learned or best practices for using some of these new uh, UE5 features? Well, so, you know, just getting art, it's, it's very different. Making a game that looks photoreal is quite different from making a movie that has to be photoreal. In the movie business, we have these things called compositors, and they do an amazing job of taking lots and lots of lighting elements, lots and lots of passes, adding some practical elements and making stuff look real. Now, in our world, where it's total real-time computer graphics, you don't totally control where the camera's going, so them assets have to look photoreal just naturally without a composite process. So um, the, there, there's... there's the, getting Nana enabled us to do unbelievable detail, but actually knowing how to make the art using that detail, you know, if you use photogrammetry, it works, but a lot of the buildings aren't based on photogrammetry. There's a lot of custom made stuff. The cars, for example, um, uh, them cars had to look great and we didn't have scans and we couldn't base them on existing cars. Otherwise we have a copyright challenge. Um, so they're all made from scratch. So actually, there was a lot of lessons learned in terms of fabrication, how much procedural texturing, how much hand painting, when to use photogrammetry stuff, when to use reference. And uh, I think our, our art team leveled up really well. I think by the end of it, like we, even our friends at, at Weta, um, Weta Visual Effects, they, they, they learned lessons as they were doing this because it really, it's like, no, it just has to work. We stick it into a table, it just has to look real. Yeah, no, there is no more room for cheating. I mean, usually in, com in compositing, you can actually fix things, but there is no fix it in post anymore, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Fix it, fix it in dev, yeah. Um, uh, you know, the humans, the humans were pretty hard, yeah. One of the nice things is that Three Lateral and Cubic, um, they're effectively the same company. We kept their names. We were, anyway, that's just the way it is. They were, they were evolving new capture technologies, so... Um, Vlad and the team have an amazing new generation photogrammetry scanner that we were able to get Keanu and Carrie Ann to do their performance. In fact, we flew them over to Novisad in um, um, uh, uh, in in, uh, in Serbia to to actually get the shoot done. And yeah, it was a cool experience for the actors because you know they've been in Berlin shooting the movie. They'd never seen anything of this level of technology. The stuff that Vlad has in, over in Novisad is is unbelievable, but uh, you know, matching it exactly, we were fortunate enough that Lana Wachowski shot us live action uh, reference. And actually we use a tiny bit of the live action in the demo and we cut between the computer generated version and the, the real version of Keanu to, to sort of enhance the effect of the, the narrative that we're giving. So, I mean, it, it was an amazing demo and already at, at a scale, uh, you know, some numbers have been shared, but you know, it's basically the size of Los Angeles, you know, thousands and thousands of cars, you know, tens of thousands of people and everything. So, but how do you, how do you scale from, 
you know, to a fully simulated world. I mean, do you think that that the technology would, would allow us to scale to represent the fully simulated world? You know, a, a totally fully simulated world, say the whole of America, yeah, um, or the whole planet, you know, there, there, there are still challenges is that in that that demo runs on a single computer. Yeah. Gameplay, the, you know, even though the AI, you know, we're doing something that most games don't do in that demo in that all of the AI characters or vehicles are asynchronously simulating continuously. So that's why you see on YouTube all these traffic jams that happen in the demo because a traffic jam will propagate and just get worse and worse and worse until some lucky event happens with an AI car and it just clears itself. But um, if you wanted to do that with millions of vehicles and millions of people, then we sort of need to start thinking about, well, how do you program AI and simulation across multiple computers because you can't possibly hold it in one computer. So that's, you know, that's a subject very dear to Tim's heart right now. And I think you'll probably hear more from him in the next couple of years in terms of the way that we're going to, we're going to solve them problems. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a big challenge. The engine definitely helps the current version of the engine, UE5, the one we're on the edge of shipping, definitely helps in terms of managing the complexity of a big world, but a fully simulated world with clouds and weather and, you know, the butterfly effect actually being able to propagate is, is a challenge that I think that computer science and video game world has to work on. You know, there are a few little things out there that sort of, you know, divide the world into a uniform grid of simulations and stuff, but they don't quite deal with the fact that, you know, in a video game, you can teleport from anywhere to anywhere. You can, you know, you, you're looking infinitely far distances. There's a lot of challenges ahead of us, but you know what? That's the cool thing about this industry is that there's, there's always something new to work on that's cool and exciting. So Kim, the, the Matrix Awakens, that was both a game, but it was also a very cinematic and very choreographed experiences. How did you how did you achieve that? So it's it, that's such a good question, Mark. So we, you know, we, we obviously it, it happened in this order. So we built the engine, we built the city with the engine and some help from from um, Houdini as well, um, and then we populated with AI, we populated with traffic, and then we drive the vehicles in the virtual world. And because this is running in the world of a simulation, just like the Matrix itself, everything is recordable. So Colin, who's our, our lead cinematics artist on the project, is able to drive that Camaro, you know, power slide it round corners, weave it in and out of traffic, reset the simulation, record it all, and then go, wow, that was a neat maneuver. Let me put cameras that follow that action around. So we literally filmed inside the world of a simulation, which, I, you know, they, every filmmaker I've talked to, I'm like, no, no, it really, it, it's much more akin to the Star Trek and the Hollow deck like we lit, we ran a sim and we filmed inside it we staged the action we loaded the actors into it and it really you know even down to the lighting simulation lumen is so good if we want to get a little bit more fill light into a character we just put a white card in the car switch it so it's not visible to the camera but it, it adds to the lighting and we get nice fill light so um yeah it really it, it's very analogous to filmmaking in the matrix is, is what it is yeah, so it's, it's actually simulation of cinematography, and so that allows you to create that. I mean, those shots were actually beautiful. And, and so, who, who directed the piece? Was there the equivalent of a director? Um, it's it's actually you know the way we tend to work in video games is quite different from the from the film business. It's not really one person, but it started. You know, the original story started. Lana Wachowski wrote it, so it's a custom script. 
Um, and um, that was most of the intro um, at the beginning where they questioned the nature of what is real and what is not real. And then we transitioned to in the car because Lana was like, whoa, you're going to just have Trinity driving a car and it's a person that nobody even knows who it is driving. I'm like, video games, you can suspend your disbelief. She's like, no, I'm going to write you something. So that whole scene of them taking the Mickey out of the, the marketing people, um, Lana wrote that. And then the rest of it, that was, that was epic, and it's a combination of, you know, John, John Gator was involved, Gavin Moran, uh, Colin, and just trying ideas out and trying to stage and work out, you know, because John was designing the city a little bit, so we would change the freeway a little bit. It's like, well, where are we going to, you know, we'd have the freeway, we'd scout a little bit, and we're like, no, we need someone to do a handbrake turn here. Oh, okay, let's just this freeway a little bit. So it was very, you know, we would terraform as the sequence evolved. But it was a lot of that stuff was internal and the team just, you know, trying to work out what they could pull off. And you've got this extra challenge in that in a virtual simulated world, if you move the camera from one side of the city to the other, then them assets, because it's just a place that, you know, it's a PlayStation or Xbox, it's not got infinite memory. You know, that stuff may, may not be in memory. So the streaming systems in the engine have to prime and load the content as you teleport. So it's actually quite important that you think about, as you go from cut to cut, if you teleport yourself too far down the street, then you're, go you're, you're going to cause a problem that causes a hitch in the playback. And and the one thing with that, that, that sequence is we didn't want to be cheating with video um, because people are colors on that. We really truly wanted to render on the console that's in front of you. So there's a lot of a lot of thought went into, you know, where do we place the camera? Can we have repeating geometry on this section of the of the street? So actually, it's, it's, it's pretty clever the way that Colin set it up. Well, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be interesting for filmmakers because they're going to have to learn new ways and new techniques. So they're going to have to relearn. But then the creative freedom they get out of it seems to be well worth the price. Do you think we'll see? How are we with the adoption of game mechanics to support movie making? Where do you think we are? I know it's something that you care a lot about and you've been advocating for a long time. So, You know, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that as more people make movies using our engine, that they start to lean into this cinematics through simulation, as you were saying earlier. You know, I, I think that the, the, the old school way of doing visual effects were you set up a particle system, you're trying to make it look like rain, and, you know, you tweak it on a per shot basis. I would like to love to see a more systems level approach where if you have a vehicle that you need to drive around in a car chase, whether you're shooting on an LED wall or it's a fully synthetic shot, rig up a car, make it drivable. Yeah, it's actually fun. It, it's, it's more akin to you know physical production than traditional visual effects production. Um, if you want to have weather, build a weather system. You know, maybe we ship one at some point with the engine. Use our time of day system to change the angle of the sun in the sky. Take a very sort of procedural and uh, you know systemic approach to how you build the world, as opposed to trying to do every little component as bespoke. And as studios do more and more in the engine, they'll build more and more of a digital backlog, not just of models and textures, but of these clever systems. Yeah. Oh, you want something that looks like a lightning strike or a thunderstorm? Here's the thunderstorm piece of content that we've made. Oh, what type of thunderclouds? You know, it's, it's, it's really start to, and that's another reason why I like to use the matrix for this, start to think if you had the power to control the matrix and you were filming in the matrix, what cool things would you want to be able to do? Oh, if you crash a car, reset it instantly. Yeah, let's just make it so they're instantly resettable, just like they would be in a video game. So that's that's the bit that, that I, I, I want people to lean in. It's beginning to happen. They're finally... Finally, I'm seeing the film team start to go, well, hold on, it's just a big video game running. Yes, yes, yes. 
So, Kim, do you think uh, interactive movies, where maybe you're watching a movie and Mark is watching a movie, but you're both using different different camera angles, do you think that will catch on? You know, I, I think, obviously, there's a lot to be said for the craftsmanship that goes into telling a, a good story. Um, but I do feel that the ability, if, you know, if you're building your story in with real-time technology, the ability to go back into that story, explore it in different ways, share it together. And even I, I even think that as we see a new generation of storytellers and filmmakers, I, th- I do think they'll start to evolve into these hybrid experiences that are part interactive and part cinematic. And who knows, you know, the, the, the human imagination is endless. So I think now this, this new tool appearing in front of creators, I think we're going to, I think we're going to actually see a new generation of creators that are they filmmakers, are they game makers? Uh, they make experiences and some of it may be a traditional story and some of it may be a very, very deep, trippy, interactive experience. Well said. So as, as you know, one of our favorite topics here on the podcast is to talk about the open metaverse and, uh, you know, opening, opening those data sets. So how, how, how you envision the path forward so that, you know, we can, we can create those amazing experiences like the Matrix Awakens, but how do we eventually share them and share those assets and make, make this, those, that city like a truly open city? Okay. So. You know, that is a long path for everybody involved in the in the whole metaverse of things. You know, I, I see good progress thanks to Pixar kicking off open standards and ILM as well with EXR. They're beginning to be open standard containers for assets, but you know, primarily they're involved. They revolve around you know static or pre-animated assets and not smart assets. So, for example, a car. You know, a Ferrari that drives like a Ferrari but is fully digital is not just a model. It has a lot of logic. And, you know, depending on how deep you want to go down the rabbit hole of simulation, you know, it could have cylinders and internal combustion all running in its virtual simulation. So I think that I think we're a fair way off of being able to encapsulate transportability of smart assets. But I do feel that machine learning, you know, if you if you if you show a computer enough examples of input changing output, then eventually it can do a pretty good job of emulating that stuff. Yeah. And we've seen some great research happening over the last few years with with deep learning. And I think that we may actually find that instead of trying to standardize physics system, mechanicals, all the complexities of what makes a real world object be complex. And, you know, I'm sat on a swivel chair right now. You're probably, I'm probably irritating the, the camera people that I'm sliding around here. But, you know, this is a reasonably, com- my, my air and chair is a pretty complicated thing. A car or a vehicle, they're so much more complicated. And, and I think that, I think that machine learning may end up being the container that we use to transport complex rules because I don't, I just, you know, unless we come up with a standardized programming language and a, sta- a completely standardized physics system, it does, there's a lot of work. It'll happen over the next decade. I'm pretty sure these things will happen. But right now, um, I think it's a, a nice open dialogue like this to exchange ideas between different companies, different creators, the games industry versus the movie industry. I think having this, this sort of o- open forum for talking about the big challenges challenges and you know i'm a big believer in incremental progress it's good to you know what was it that casey Kasem used to say you can have your head in the stars and you keep your feet on the ground or something like that i i, I think it's good to think about where we have to go 
but not, not go into analysis paralysis where we're like, well, we can't make it until we try. I, I think there's so much experimentation that needs to happen. And I think as long as people experiment in the open way, you know, one of the nice things about the way that VR evolved at the, at the early days is people were really transparent about what they were doing, what they were trying to achieve, the hardware they were making. And I think the metaverse needs that level of transparency and exploration and discussions uh, to, 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 to help us really solve these problems. Yeah, I, I, lo I love that, and I love to see themes across podcast episodes. Mark, if you remember when we had Vlad from Unity on the podcast, and uh, Kim Vlad is a, a creator at WebGL, and he encouraged everyone to experiment in the open, which I think is exactly what, what you're saying as well. Exactly. You know, I'd, I'd love to do some crazy experiments where you have, you know, two engines, you know, working together. There, there's like, we've had discussions with people in the past about you could do some, you know, if you think about driving a vehicle, Sure, the, all the logic for making the steering work and the traction and all that stuff can be contained within the logic of one particular game engine, but its interface to the virtual world is actually quite simple. It just needs to know about the terrain and the inputs from the user. So, you know, and, and if it's going to collide with any object. So there's some simple physics transports that you can do between two different systems. And I'd love to see some open experiments where we really try to mix it up and do some crazy stuff. Actually, Kim, we, we just recorded uh, one of our previous episodes with, with uh, Juan from Godot and Royal from O3D, O3D, you know, the open source 3D engine. And this is exactly where the conversation went about, you know, making experiments to have data that, you know, trying to get a drivable car to go from a foreign real engine to O3D and vice versa. And I think there is a lot, you know, there's a, there's a lot of appetite uh, amongst the industry, and we're very close to the Kronos organization and Neil Trivet to, to, to try to make those things happen. So, uh, but I think you had a very interesting, uh, and I think the first time we hear this on the podcast, this idea of uh, you could transport the behavior without really understanding them. You know, this notion of having machine learning algorithm learn about input and outputs, I think is probably a great, probably a great intermediate step so that we don't have to effectively standardize all aspects. As you, as you probably know, we're expensive with cloth. It's like cloth simulation is super complicated. There's no way you're going to run super complicated cloth simulations anyway on a console. So can we get a deep learning algorithm to, to actually do a pretty good job of faking the cloth? And the answer is actually, yeah, um, we could still do with one more console generations increment for the deep learning hardware. But um, it is some interesting stuff there. Even lighting, you know, you think about, you know, we did this project with the mill, I don't know, four or five years ago now with the Blackbird. And, you know, what they do is they... They, they do a panoramic um, um, environment capture with a, a spherical camera rig on the top of the Blackbird. There's, if you want to light a car it, that's actually driving through a world in a different engine from the one that's actually simulating the car, then all you need for lighting, you do a pretty good job of just generate a real-time light probe from one engine and feed that video data into the other engine, which is how we did the, the human race. And it looks pretty good. It looks pretty good. And, and it's no, no secret that a lot of visual effects companies, when they do their character renders, they just, they don't, they don't ray trace and light against the entire environment. They generate lat longs and they use them for lighting. So I, th I do think uh, an experiment, I'd love to get, get involved next year or two, like, try something crazy, see if we can mix it up between different platforms. Well, and Patrick, when, when Kim says, let's try something crazy, it's actually crazy. Actually, I have one question, you know, because come back on, and close the loop on the metrics awake. And that was a big endeavor. Did you have any doubt in any moment that you would make it? 
there's always fear. You know, when you deliver any big project, even the Matrix movies, the, 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 the hardest project ever to deliver was Matrix Reloaded for me. Um, and you know, you go through these experiences that you just have to believe you've got the best team. And we do, we have like, we have some of the greatest people in the world working on it. And, you know, if you believe, and not to, you know, cheesily, uh, riff on, um, on, uh, um, Ted Lasso, but I believe you've got to believe and it, it, you'll get there. And, you know, what we do on these big projects, we adapt, you know, they, we, there was a Kung Fu fighting moment in the game in the, in the projects at one point, and it just was out of scope. We just couldn't finish it. So we just, we took it out and fixed the holes and it's still a good experience, but yeah, it's, it's scary, but you know, and we did, you know, it didn't, we didn't quite hit the date we were originally wanting to hit, but fortunately, you know, the, the Game Awards came out of the blue and we're like, wow, it's before the movie, Game Awards, it's got massive, oh, it's even better, couldn't have, couldn't have worked out better. So even though we, you know, we're probably two or three months later than we would have originally planned, it just, by magic, these things came together. There's always, you know, there's always a silver lining, there, well, almost always a silver lining. Yeah, I mean, what an incredible achievement, and uh, you know the, the impact that it has. I mean, as I think it was, it was fantastic to watch this happen. So, um, is there any topic that you know we think we should be covering, and you know, to to further the conversation about the open metaverse, and anything we you would have liked to discuss today, or we should cover in another episode? Um. You know, I, I do think about, I think, you know, if you want to go really crazy, it's doing a brainstorming between two engine teams, maybe, you know, uh, maybe it's the two big engine teams or it's a proprietary engine, a Frostbite team and Epic or something about, come on, let's let's do some crossover stuff. Let's do something really crazy and do that in an open, like try and do it because people, will, you know, they, 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 they. Our next guest is Natalia Tatarczyk from Unity. Do you have a question for her or a proposal? How, how would we do something cool that uses both engines at the same time? Okay, we'll, we'll ask. Yeah, that's, that's, that is the stuff of metaverse, yeah? And then, you know, the other thing that I'm really looking forward to is simulating a sim, not, simultaneous events in the real world and the virtual world and bringing a, a different twist for if you're a game player, you're going to get something a bit different, but it's the same event. And connecting, you know, the one thing that we can do in these big, massive multiplayer games that we have is we can connect all races, all people across the entire planet to come together and have fun and enjoy themselves. And I, I, I think that we can do the same thing between the virtual world and the real world in really interesting ways it would be exciting to like what would live aid be in 2024 25 yeah it like there's so much potential for creators to come together so yeah i, th I think that i think that the, you know what are the creative no, five years from now what should we have done what have we failed at if we haven't done it in five years that would be a cool thing to talk about and our last question you know any organization or person that you'd want to give a shout out to well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably miss a lot of people. Obviously, you know, our confidence and family on, on the Matrix, Lana, Lana and Dan Glass and John Gator and James McTeague and Keanu and Carrie. This goes, it goes endless. Everybody from the Matrix crew that helped us out. Warner Brothers were amazing. Our friends at Side Effects, all the third-party vendors that helped us on the demo. And, you know, honestly, our engine, our engine team, like, you know, to go, people don't, you know, the visual effects business, where I worked for 20 years like we love our engineers because they help us make images we've never seen before but it's it's not you know everything's going everything's quite off the shelf nowadays there's, a, there's some proprietary stuff left but it's not what it used to be and I think that that knowledge of how powerful 
a great engineer can be and how you can transform the ordinary into the amazing. You know, this demo did not run at frame rate a month before we shipped. And not just by a little, it wasn't like a 5% thing. It was a lot. And the engineers optimized their code, come up with new techniques, think of new ways of doing it. The artists work with them. It, that, that collaboration between technologists and creatives and game designers is super, super important. And I think that we ain't going to make a great metaverse unless we respect the, the technologists and the artists that are actually going to make these things. And I think it's very easy for people to think of big IP and big brands, but it's really, if you want to make something amazing, you need, you need, you need the creativity and the technology totally working together. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, Kim, it was a treat to have you uh, with us today. Thank you very much. Congrats again on the Matrix Awakens and everything you've been doing. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's very, very promising for the metaverse, for the quality of content we're going to have to experience. So thank you so much for everything. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Patrick. Kim, really appreciate you joining us today. And yeah, you've had just an amazing journey in, in CG. Really, really great to, for you to come. And I'm not that great yet, getting that way, but it's, it's me and, both me and Mark share this. Well, like, hey, we've been around for ages. We haven't started to show our age totally yet, so. <laughs> so uh, I want to take a minute to thank uh, our audience. You know, the feedback on the podcast continue to be graced. Uh, we, we're so lucky to have, like, amazing guests, and, uh, and you were one of them, Kim. So as, as usual, everybody, if you have feedback, reach out to us on social and uh, hit the podcast on your favorite platform and uh, share it. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Kim. Mm -hmm.